This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not tied to the offer of investment products. It is not an endorsement or recommendation of any company, security, or investment strategy. The views of our guests are not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. One of the very hot areas of the market this year has been technology stocks, cloud-based software as service stocks. We have three great guests to discuss uh, the recent earnings season as well as the long-term outlook there. Uh, Professor Siegel, we've had a lot of market news, political developments this week, some big moves in rates. What's your current read? Yeah, uh, so so much. Of course, we we did get, uh, let's talk about politics a bit. We, of course, got the vice presidential choice. I think it was a safe choice. I actually was right on predicted.com and saw actually Biden tick up one or two points. Now, Trump has come back. Um, from his lows of two or three weeks ago. Um, and he was down to 35% as a probability. He's up to 42 now. Biden is 61. Actually, that's exactly the same odds that they, uh, the, uh, that the predicted has for the Senate going Republican. Um, there are, uh, uh, I mean, we're beginning to, to hone down on those cases. The, the, the Republicans hold three seats advantage they would probably gain one more in georgia but it looks like they're losing going to lose four seats by the polls um, um at this point in maine and north carolina um in colorado and in arizona and that's a tie and that of course means if there's a democratic presidency <laughs> we have the other is going to be really close and with mail ballots we may not know the senate we we may know the presidency um, um, sooner um, if Biden wins by what's expected. Uh, by the way, um, uh, Nate Silver, who was the closest of all the of, of those that predicted uh, the election last of the f- well-known um, forecasters predicted, he he now gives um, Trump um, a uh, 28% probability, about three in in ten. Um, and, and Biden about seven in ten, um, which is the same as he actually gave uh, uh, Trump before sixteen. He said if the election were held tomorrow, it would be ninety-two percent Trump. But he said, you know, there's a lot can go on in the next three months, and there certainly is. And thirty uh, percent um, is not to be sneezed at, and forty percent in the betting odds is not to be sneezed at as a possibility. So. Um, uh, now, what, what's going on on the stimulus front? I mean, the Democrats think they hold all the cards. Um, you know, they'll probably say, hey, you know, what's no, no stimulus until the election. I mean, they, in, in their opinion, let's make the economy as worse as possible. That's bad for Trump. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, before the election. Um, and so there may not be. Now, don't forget, Trump has already authorized 300 with another 100 from, from the states. There's still a lot of money going for unemployment. What what is not coming is for PPP, pay, the Payroll Protection Program, um, which, by the way, interestingly enough, is a, is what both parties agree need to go on. Um, so I think you know whether we get six hundred or four hundred dollars for the the, the uh, uh, for the unemployment is not going to make a big difference uh, in the next few months. Uh, PPP makes more of a difference. 
Um, although, and it's ironic. Now, I mean, I think whoever gets to be president in November, probably at that point, they'll just release all PPP and enhance it, because clearly the the uh, the total opening up of the economy is going so much slower than we had hoped for, with the viruses still being in hot spots. Um, uh, so that uh, there's a lot of firms that are, are still closed. The, 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 the reopening of restaurants keeps on being delayed. It's only outside. It's only outside. We know what's happening to sports, which is, you know, tens of billions of dollars for the sports towns and everything else. I mean, there needs to be PPP continuing on, and, uh, the, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see to that. But it, it would be retroactive if it gets there in November. So it's a, it's a political ploy. Um, at this point, as far as the market's concerned, yeah, yields up um, and uh, inflation up well above. This is themes that we've been talking about for, uh, you know, how many how many months now um, that that uh, the money uh, surge that is in there is going to make uh, this a stronger and a tighter economy and more inflationary economy than anyone thought was possible in March and uh, in April. And so, um, uh, uh, yeah, I'm not surprised to, to, to see that uh, the PPI and the CPI be way above uh, expectations. I continue to believe it's going to be above expectations. By the way, you see this big, today we had a big productivity surge for the last quarter despite GDP went down, and that's because, of course, they laid off all the lower-income workers. Um, this happened in the last recession also. I think productivity surge is going to happen uh, in 2021 uh, uh, also. Um, uh, in terms of the markets, CNBC had me on yesterday. Uh, they told me earlier in the week, Dr. Siegel wants you to be on when the S&P hits an all-time high. Well, it's just below that all-time high. Um, uh, as you know, FANG stocks are really making it be an all-time high. The average stock is around 10% below its all-time high and probably won't get there until the economy opens up more and, uh, you know, there's more confidence in the, the therapeutics and, uh, and the vaccines. Yeah, I just want to let our listeners know that we have a new feature. They can write in questions to you. You could ask, uh, the email address is AskSiegel, S-I-E-G-E-L, at wisdomtree.com to get questions answered each week. We've had a few questions, Professor. One is, uh, you know, just staying on this, this equity hitting all-time highs is people want to know what it would take for you to become much more negative on stocks. So what are the factors yeah. there? They say, oh, Siegel's a perma bull. You know, he's never negative. Well, there, the, 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 I have been negative in the past. In fact, uh, my most famous op-ed ever was in March of uh, 2000 when I told, told everyone to just totally get out of tech stocks that they were crazy uh, uh, valuations at that time. Um, so I, it's not like I'm always bullish on the stock market. I'll tell you two things that would concern me, um, uh, and they're not anything um, that I see in the next few weeks or even on the presidential side, uh, the election side. Um, if I see the Fed beginning to move prematurely um, uh, because they worry about this inflation, uh, you know, it's my thesis that they're going to let this inflation ride much more than their target. If I see them not doing that and trying to restrain liquidity, that would be bearish. A second bearish would be a ramp up in the war against China significantly, that we really get into a trade war um, that, in, and that could involve the world. That would be really negative for stocks. Uh, some could say that's even more possible under Trump. If he wins again, it would, he would uh, see that as a validation of his anti-China policy than it would be under uh, Biden. But uh, we still have very important supply chain items coming from China. We still sell a lot into China. Yeah, China's behavior is not great, to say the least, uh, and we want to modify it. But a full-scale trade war is really negative. If I see any of those two things, I will turn bearish on, on the stock market. Your point on the the Fed was tied into one of the other questions that came in and talked about the Fed keeping rates low for a while. And if your view is inflation's rising, do you think the the yield curve is going to shift upward with them trying to keep that rate curve anchored down? I guess that's what's happening this week. Yeah. So so let me explain what what I think is going to happen. Um, uh, 
the Fed controls the short rate. It does not control the long rate. Um, uh, there's been talk about yield uh, curve control. I do not think they're going to do it. Um, uh, they, they really have very limited power, and especially with the, you know, a $22 trillion market out there um, uh, to, to really do that in any meaning, uh, meaningful way. Uh, my, my belief is, however, they're going to keep the short rate down because the unemployment rate is going to remain high for a long time. Either under Trump or under Biden, there will be huge political pressure to keep that rate down. Now, in the meantime, the inflation is going to drive that long rate up. So we're going to get a steepening of the curve. And that's a signal generally for the Fed to raise rates. But they're going to keep it down lower than perhaps they should. Um, until the bond market finally, and uh, you know, I, I know Ed Yardini, who coined the term bond vigilantes uh, it's about 40 years ago, said they're dead now. There's no one. I don't think they're dead. Uh, I think they're lying in wait, and I think uh, they will tell uh, the government, hey, there's too much money being put here. You've got to start uh, closing that gap. And um, so finally, when bond rates get to be 3 4 5% and the mortgage rates get high and people begin to squeeze, then finally we're going to get the Fed raising those rates. But that's long in the future. In the meantime, that liquidity um, and um, that uh, in moderate inflation, as I say, uh, is, is going to be positive for, for the stock market. Yeah, there, there were a few people who wrote in on gold, which sort of had a pullback, maybe caused by the jump in rates this week. Uh, yeah. they, they said they were never a big believer in gold, but in current environment, is it something that's too late? Has it moved already? What's your, your current thinking? It's not too late, and it just ran above itself. I mean, you, you're going to get that big pullback. We have a lot of assets now, which are, are only trend, trend followers get into, and so they just pile on with tight, uh, tight shorts. Uh, 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 stops when when they want to get out, um, and um, uh, you know that's what happened to gold. It just ran up and ran up, and then it finally broke down for whatever reason, high rates or whatever else, and then it it, it took a big spill. Same thing happened to silver. Um, but I, my feeling is the trend again with inflation, and uh, Jeremy, you you know, I mean, you know, through this, the five editions of stocks for the long run. I've never been a fan of gold. This is really in the last several months because of what I've seen with the tremendous increase in liquidity uh, and, the, and the jump of the money supply of you know, 34%, 35%, uh, unprecedented in 75 years, that I now believe that gold is, is going to be a, a good holding for you um, uh, going forward. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying it's going to outperform stocks, but I still think it's it's going to going to do best, but it's something that that you do want to hold. Yeah, the higher rates, um, and they're not, I see them right now at sixty nine basis points. Again, the rates are down because there's the, the treasuries are viewed as that hedge asset against short term fluctuations. But uh, as time goes on through two thousand twenty and twenty one, particular people are going to guess, hey, this is too expensive for me to you know hold a short term hedge. And, and see the erosion of my principal by inflation and getting, you know, a half a percent. Uh, and then you're going to start seeing those uh, those yields move higher. But it's going to be because of price pressure. So gold itself can still move forward, certainly in the early stage of the rising of uh, bond interest rates, and not until the Fed really says, okay, this is enough, I've got to tighten and raise those short rates, do, do I think uh, you know, this bull phase of uh, gold would be over? Well, Professor, thank you for those comments. Talk to you again next week. Absolutely. Thank you, Jeremy. We're going to turn the conversation over to Jamin Ball, who's uh, a vice president at Redpoint Ventures. Uh, according to his Substack blog, uh, Clouded Judgment, uh, sort of focuses on enterprise software businesses at the Series B, C, and D stage. Jamin, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks for having me. Uh, maybe tell our listeners we're, we're going to have a cloud-focused discussion for the remainder part of the show uh, we, with with you first stuff, and then the second half a little bit more uh, with Bessemer and Procore. Maybe tell our listeners a little bit about Redpoint, what you focus on there, uh, and the types of businesses you guys are investing in. Totally. So Redpoint, Red we've been around for about 20 years now, investing in 
you know, enterprise software businesses as well as um, consumer businesses. We have an early stage fund that focuses more on kind of classic venture, seed series A stage businesses. In parallel to that, we have a early growth fund, which is what I'm a part of, which isn't your typical growth stage investing. It's right. You know, we like to call it in air quotes, early growth. It's, you know, series B, C and D predominantly. We do a little bit of everything with a focus on, on B2B software. So everything in, you know, infrastructure, DevOps, uh, security, application SaaS, and then as well as some healthcare, some fintech, uh, and, and some consumer as well. I personally spend a little bit more time on, on the B2B software side and, and have obviously been following everything that's been going on in the, in, in the public markets as it relates to cloud stocks very closely over the last couple of months. It's been, it's been interesting, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, so how, when you guys think about the private markets and the public markets, how you know how disconnected do you think they are? Do you think what's, uh, you know, are, are you when you think about the valuation? We'll talk about the the trends and and how you're watching the earnings season here in just a second. But like, how do you think about what's what's happening in the private markets first? It's a it's a very timely question. You know, I would say historically, when there were more kind of macro shifts in in valuations and any kind of public. SaaS and cloud markets, there was more of a lag uh, between how that affected private market valuations, right? I'd say maybe it was a six to eight, six to 12 month lag. But, you know, we ha- we're not really seeing that right now. So when, when everyone went to shelter in place, there was a, a mini lull in, in fundraisings and, and kind of private market velocity. I'd say that over the last month, two months has, you know, has, has gone out the window. I mean, just anecdotally, we're seeing companies, you know, raise their next round of funding before they've even announced their previous round of funding. There's there's so much momentum. There's so much excitement around SaaS and digital transformations accelerating and companies trading at 30 times revenue, right? And when you kind of combine all that together, you're right, you can, you can paint a rosy picture and a rosy outcome for, for any business if the end goal is, is 30x revenue, right? Obviously, that's those multiples aren't, aren't going to hold, but I think there's this shift in thought around, hey, cloud penetration, it's starting to accelerate. You know, that shift is happening faster now. COVID was the big impetus for it. Um, so it's been a crazy time in, in, in the private markets, right? I mean, it, it, it followed suit pretty quickly with, uh, with, with the public markets and, you know, we're, we're, we're doing our best to keep up. But, you know, every round now is, is a preemptive round, right? If you're you know, we used to, we, our playbook used to be, hey, let's get in touch with businesses a few months after they, you know, announce a round to kind of build that relationship. Now it's, you know, it's kind of, you know, hey, you got to, you have to have your, you know, your pulse on, on the market earlier than that because things are moving at a, at a pretty frenetic pace. Yeah, and so you, you see those multiples coming higher, and and and, and so when, when you guys are looking for an investment, I mean, how, how are you trading off that growth rate and what, what people are paying today i mean is it is it making you too overly cautious or, or do you think you just have to keep participating because the growth is so high um you know it's, it's maybe a little bit of both i would say the one thing that i love about you know our fund in particular is it's not a huge fund right so we have a 400 million dollar fund you know we don't we don't have the pressure to be uh writing 20 checks a year right our fund probably will have call it you know 14 to uh, 17 deals in a fund that will invest over, you know, call it three to four year period. So we can really, you know, pick and choose the ones we love, right? We we look for companies that we think, you know, regardless of what we're getting in at will be big standalone public independent businesses, right? We're we're not looking to invest in companies, you know, at a low absolute absolute valuation, you know, that maybe has some downside protection. It'll be a good multiple, uh, you know, but doesn't have that home run potential. And so we still like to be quite selective. You know, I'd say one shift in how the market's viewing things, the, the, the private markets, that is, is there's been a shift more to, hey, let's let's just get in at absolute low valuations, right? So companies with very little revenue, um, in some cases pre-revenue, right, are, are getting rounds done in the 100 to, you know, 100 to 200 million dollar valuation range. And, and the thinking is, hey, if we're in at an absolute low valuation, the outcomes we're seeing in the public markets are so big that, you know, we still have that upside, right? Like if you were to look at the software IPOs, 
you know, five to 10 years ago, right? I mean, you had companies like Twilio and, and Zendesk and, you know, big businesses like that who are going public with, you know, one, two, three million dollar market caps, right? And it, it feels like now, you know, every software company that goes public, that threshold now is not one, two, three, but maybe, you know, five, 10 plus, right, billion. And so when, when you kind of do the math backwards, you say, hey, if I can invest in these businesses at early valuations, if I believe they can get public, right, that threshold now is, is a much bigger outcome. And so it's, it's, they're kind of justified. Um, you know, I'd say we're, just to tie it back to your original question, we're, we're definitely treading carefully. I, I think we want to be extra sure, right, and, and have extra conviction in the businesses we're partnering with, given you know, just how frothy everything is now. Um, and it's, you know, I, I'd say we're, we're still refining our strategy. You know, it, it changes every day. At, at this point. I can understand that. We're talking with Jamin Ball of Redpoint Ventures. Uh, you know, you started writing this uh, Substack clouded judgment. Maybe talk about what got you to start putting thoughts down on paper uh, every week. And then let's talk about what you're finding in this, the, the recent earnings seasons on, on how you're looking at the different growth rates and multiples here. Totally. You know, I, w- I would say, you know, first and foremost, it, the goal was, was uh, content for SaaS entrepreneurs right? And, and SaaS founders who, you know, maybe haven't been through an IPO themselves, right? They're not repeat founders. What we've found in our portfolio is that there's often um, maybe more of a disconnect between, you know, running a business and then how ultimately private markets work. That comes to a head pretty quickly when companies start planning for that IPO process, maybe six to 12 months before it happens. The goal was really to help bridge that gap and get our founders and get all founders out there thinking about, hey, what how do the public markets value SaaS businesses, right? Because ultimately that, you know, is their end goal and it, it should be kind of their guiding light as opposed to, hey, what should I, you know, how do I need to optimize my business for the next fundraise? They're both important, but we've kind of found that that public market optimization and, and public market education was maybe a little bit of a gap. And so the original goal was just to help founders, you know, become more familiar with, uh, with public markets and, you know, if they're following them now, you know, in a few years when they do go through that, you know, IPO thinking, they're, you know, more educated and up to speed. The interesting thing has been, uh, there's definitely been an equal engagement from the hedge fund public, uh, public investing side. And so may, may need to do a little bit of uh, reframing of, of the content to, to guide the audience back more to the, you know, the entrepreneur founder uh, world. Yeah. And so, so it's interesting. You have some charts on median multiples the last four to five years. And so today, yeah. the enterprise to re- revenue multiples are showing next 12 month revenue medians today around 13 for the, for the total industry, you know, up, up, yeah. uh, up from below 10 a few years ago. Like, how, how are you thinking about like what is sustainable numbers for this, uh, for this basket? Yeah. That, that, that's a great question. You know, and if you were to, you know, go back to Salesforce IPO, you know, maybe not quite 20 years ago, but, you know, whenever that was in the early 2000s and, and kind of graph out median SaaS multiples, you know, over the last 20 years, you know, what you'll find is most of the, this basket generally, you know, on average trades between five and 10x forward revenue. And, and it kind of oscillates somewhere in between. And every now and then, you know, you'll break out and we'll break out above that. Um, you know, what history tells us, though, is usually those breakouts don't last very long, right? That's when you get a little bit unsustainable, uh, and over time, they'll come back down. And so, you know, my framework is 5 to 10x for the overall basket of SaaS businesses is more sustainable. Maybe 10 to 15x for, for the higher growth businesses are more sustainable. And, you know, right now, we're well above that, right? Right now, we're at about 13x for the overall basket, and for the high growth basket, we're you know, we're closer to 30, right? It's, it's 27, 28 times. And, you know, there, it's happened for a number of reasons. I'd say, you know, more macro stuff, right? There was just so much money injected into the economy. There were a number of industries, right? Retail, um, you know, airlines, hospitality, travel, that, that took a big hit. And we saw kind of a, a rotation of money from those markets into the SaaS markets, which are viewed as more, you know, safe, recurring revenue streams, good unit economics. It was a great place to park money. And so we saw an infusion of existing capital into SaaS. I think we saw an infusion of new stimulus money 
you know, again, in the SaaS because it's viewed as safe. Then at that same time, right, you, know, you only have to listen into one or two earnings calls, right, to hear folks like Satya Nadella say things like, you know, we saw years of digital transformation accelerated into, you know, months. I, I can't remember the exact quote. But all of that is, has kind of like built the perfect storm for, hey, COVID is actually accelerating SaaS. It's accelerating SaaS penetration. And, you know, we saw people more willing to pay for that future growth. Um, the interesting question, you know, some of the interesting data that we've seen in, in Q2 is that, you know, it, it's maybe not necessarily playing out as, as well as people would have uh, anticipated, right? There, you're kind of your obvious COVID winners, right? You have Zoom, who, who's exploded. You know, you've had Shopify just absolutely explode as businesses, you know, need more of a digital storefront. You know, even, um, you know, Edge Networks, right, like a Fastly or a CDN have, like, greatly accelerated. But for the most part, many other businesses actually aren't accelerating uh, revenue growth like we would have anticipated. Um, you know, I think a lot of that is for these enterprise sales cycles, it's just, Yes, cloud penetration may be accelerating, accelerating. Digital transformations are definitely accelerating. But the reality is these big businesses, right, they're, they're having to think critically about cost management, expense management, right? So procurement is longer. These, you know, even a company like a Datadog, right, they mentioned on their last earnings call that their larger businesses didn't expand as much, you know, from a usage-based model, didn't expand their usage as much as they had historically. And so... You kind of saw this, I mean, growth is still phenomenal, don't get me wrong, but you kind of saw a little bit more tepid growth relative to people's expectations. And, you know, as a result, we've seen a little bit of a pullback over the, uh, over the last couple of weeks here, right? And I, I think it was warranted and I, I think it was needed. You know, ultimately, the only way you can justify and make sense of a 30 or 40x multiple is if revenue is just growing so fast that they'll grow into that multiple because you know, the way I look at it, ultimately, multiples will come back down to historicals. And there's two ways that can happen, right? You can either grow your revenue so fast, like a Shopify, right, that, uh, you know, growing that piece will, will, you know, level out the multiple over time. Or you just get a big, or you don't grow that as quick and, you know, your market cap is hurt, right? And, you know, we've yep. seen that with a number of businesses, uh, like in Alterix. They kind of got crushed pretty hard. I think New Relic got crushed pretty hard. So, you know, over time, multiples will come back down, and it's just a matter of will companies grow fast enough to survive the multiple compression or, or not, right? And uh, that, that's kind of the question right now. Yeah, no, it's, it's when, whenever you get these really high expectations, it becomes tough to, to, you know, even if you meet them, you're not, you're not delivering what people want you to beat all the expectations. I mean, and it's interesting. I mean, you're, you're summary of all the companies, different metrics and their, their sort of the high growth, median growth and sort of the multiples, um, you know, you, you see things like on your, on your report, like 39% for the high growth basket revenue growth versus 17% for the middle growth. And, you know, that's sort of why they're trading at a 27 versus a 15, you know, it's sort of, yeah. it's all, it's all reflected there. Um, so it's, it's, it's a great, update i think for people who are interested in the software space what's happening i mean i think your your you know your 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 blog here uh, cloud of judgment has been a good good resource for people thanks and, and the only the last thing i'll add the, what you what you just mentioned triggered something for me which is the expectations are so high that there is no room for error and then just just two quick examples for you right shopify beat revenue expectations by 38% and their stock only traded up about 5 or 6%, which is crazy, right? On the flip side, you had someone like a Twilio who beat revenue expectations for this quarter by 9%, raised guidance for next quarter by 6%, which I would say, you know, historically, I'd expect that, you know, with, those, with that kind of print, you know, I'd expect a 10% plus pop to the stock. But what ended up happening was that the stock was down 3% the next day, even despite the big beat and the beat raise, big raise. It's all just because expectations are so incredibly high. There's literally no room for error. I mean, when you're beaten by almost 10% and raising guidance and your stock comes down, that should be a, a pretty strong signal that, you know, multiples as they currently stand are, are pretty unsustainable. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, they are. It'll be interesting as they get through this earnings season. How are they able to, you know, they sort of consolidate some of their gains and maybe, uh, you know, maybe continue moving. But uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, see the future. Thanks for coming on behind the market, sharing some of your updates. Hopefully, we can stay in touch on on what you're what you're focused on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. We're going to continue this focus on the cloud in the second half with Bessemer Venture Partners and Procore, one of the private cloud businesses. We've got Brian Feinstein of Bessemer Venture Partners, Steve Zom, Chief Cultural Officer at Procore. We have a show focused on the cloud space today, and Bessemer Venture Partners uh, is a venture capital firm who who actually worked with the NASDAQ to create an index of the public companies in this space. Uh, my firm, Wisdom Tree, licenses that index. Uh, before I turn to Steve at Procore, and they have a, a business focus on the construction industry, I want to get some framing thoughts from Brian. Um, Brian, maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about what you focus on at Bessemer and the types of software businesses that, that you're investing in at, at Bessemer. Sure, Jeremy. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, over the past decade here at Bessemer, we've doubled down on cloud software investing. And uh, the software ecosystem has a, a, a number of different subcategories. I focus on vertical software, which is software for specific industries like construction where Procore plays. Um, over the years, we've built what I think is the largest vertical software portfolio in the venture business, and these are companies that have come to define their industries, companies like Shopify, Procore, uh, Toast, Service Titan, MindBody, Encino. You know, the list goes on, and this is a big area of focus for us as a firm. Happy, happy, happy to share some thoughts as to, as to why we, we focus on vertical software if helpful. Yeah, I mean, like what, when you think about something vertical like Procore, we we had Wix on, who sort of maybe is more horizontal, uh, you know, goes That's across right. vert, you know, across industries. Is there a, a a reason to focus on one versus the other? Yeah, you know, we've come to appreciate that each of these verticals has very specific and idiosyncratic needs, right? Um, the horizontal platforms can't do all things for all industries, and um, and and so we've been studying each of these vertical markets, trying to identify the next generation of software businesses like Procore that are going to come to dominate these verticals. And, 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 and it's attractive for a few reasons. First, you know, as, 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 as the Wix team shared with you, delivery of software through the cloud has made it really easy and inexpensive and effective to, to deliver software through the Internet, which dramatically expands the market for software products, particularly in vertical markets like construction, where you have buyers who don't have large IT departments and, and, and can benefit from software in the cloud. So, so before Procore, it was really hard to collaborate on a construction project in a digital way, so everyone used paper. Now with the cloud and mobile internet and Procore, you can do it on your phone, your iPad, your laptop, and you can run a construction project uh, on software rather than paper and pencil. So that was, that, that was kind of trend number one. Trend number two is that, um, you know, we came to appreciate that when you focus on a vertical, the market opportunity and your ability to capture market share is much larger than most people think. So, so let me put this in perspective. You know, Salesforce, which is a market leader in horizontal CRM software, has about 20% market share, maybe 25, which is surprising. They're the, they're the market leader. They're, they're still sitting at 20, 25% market share. Because in, in these large horizontal markets, you have, you have lots of different types of customers, lots of different industries. Everyone has idiosyncratic needs. In a vertical market, by focusing on a specific industry, you can often unlock these winner-take-all dynamics. And so you look at a company like Viva, which is basically Salesforce, but, but for life sciences, so pharmaceutical CRM, Viva has more than 80% market share in its core market. And so you know, once you have this market leadership position, you start benefiting from these winner-take-all dynamics, and 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 that leads us to the third trend, which we observe, which is once you're a market leader, you can you can start expanding your product portfolio, cross-selling other products, growing your revenues by selling more things to customers who trust you. And so, you know, Steve will talk about Procore, but Procore started off with with one product and has done this very successfully. You know, the company now has more than a dozen products today and is becoming kind of the operating system for the construction industry. And so, you know, that was a long-winded overview, but in recent years, the public markets and acquirers have come to appreciate the power of this vertical model. You know, Shopify is valued at over $100 billion. Encino just went public, valued at $6 billion. You know, Velocity was just acquired. 
uh, for a billion dollars by Salesforce, and and Ellie Mae was just acquired for eleven billion dollars by the owners of the New York Stock Exchange. So so this vertical trend is becoming more and more prominent. So let me bring in Steve of Procare, which is still a private company. But Steve, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks for joining us. And maybe you know you don't think of construction as a you know a highly internet specific uh, business. So thanks for coming to share your insights. Maybe tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what what you first started focusing on and, and how you're you know what kind of solutions you're providing to the construction industry. Hi, Jeremy. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it, it, construction remains uh, one of the least digitized industries in the world, yet it's also one of the most complex. It's a tremendous opportunity that Procore has to really uh, take the manual, largely manual processes of information uh, sharing that accompanies a construction project and to bring those online into a a single user environment, as Brian pointed out, we've gone from what was a project management application uh, five or six years ago. Now we have over a dozen different construction-specific applications that uh, include not only project management, but also financial management around construction projects, quality and safety, and the list goes on. But really what's interesting is that we've created what we think is is our mission is to connect everyone in construction on a global platform, which means taking a SaaS software as a service platform base where all of our partners can come in and connect through our open APIs to give this uh, entire ecosystem around digitizing the construction process. And that's everything from pre-construction through course of construction through on it. Uh, closure and handout of the project. And when you think about construction, the complexity of it, if you've ever just uh, remodeled a house and you think about the the information that's going on with just a a small bedroom or kitchen or bathroom remodel, take that and put it on the scale of a large apartment complex or a huge office building or an airport, uh, the list goes on and on. So the, the challenges are immense, but Procore has been um, able to help uh, step up and help out the industry with those. And, and so your platform is really a resource for, uh, you know, what, what, what segments of the construction? Is it people from, from major projects to smaller projects? Like how do you think about who your, your end clients are and, and are just general listeners uh, here type of people who would find value? Or is it really the, the big construction firms that are using it to manage their resources? Procore came out of the gates, and, and we've been around since 2002 when our uh, founder, Chewy Cordemanch, who's our CEO now, uh, he was frustrated with uh, communications just during residential communication for a small custom home builder. But since that time, by listening to our customers, by solving the problems that they brought to us, we've steadily grown until now. Procore uh, is used to manage the communications, the collaboration, and uh, all of the workflows for some of the world's largest projects, including uh, major sports stadiums, airports. So on the high end, we service general contractors and facility owners that have portfolios in the billions of dollars, either of ownership in in the case of facility owners or construction volume on an annual basis in the billions, all the way down to still small custom home builders and specialty contractors who may be involved with $10 million, $12 million, $15 million worth of uh, construction volume per year. This isn't a consumer product. It's definitely uh, built for the construction industry. But within the construction industry, so there's such a wide variety of players uh, that get involved with any construction projects. Our primary core markets are for general contractors, facility owners, and those specialty contractors but we're also seeing tremendous interest from industries that are associated with construction, such as the insurance industry. So, for example, travelers insurance that underwrites much of the construction loans in the United States just came out with a program where they provide a discount on Procore to their clients that travelers will actually pay their, the, the discount percentage so that uh, their clients who are Procore users can manage their projects using Procore. The reason that Travelers, a major insurance company, would do this is because they see that better information, better collaboration, actually results in risk reduction for those projects. 
Now, now everybody's talking about what the current crisis and pandemic, how it's been impacting business. A lot of people feel digital has accelerated the shift to digitalization. How has COVID impacted Procore uh, and, and your opportunities in managing through that? It's been obviously a, a super interesting time for us. And, and there's kind of a, on the one hand, on the other hand, on the one hand, yes, it's accelerated the shift to digitization because companies realize that they can't put everyone on the job site. So they're using Procore uh, for everything from uh, team scheduling to uh, see who's on the job site, when deliveries should be there, how their shifts should go, uh, all the way down to an integration with Zoom that we built into uh, Procore. Uh, that's an example of using the platform for the good of the industry. That's a free integration that we did with Zoom, we did with Microsoft Teams, so that uh, meetings can be held and video can be uh, relayed from, from the job site. All that is great as evidence of the trend towards digitization. However, what we did see, especially at the beginning of COVID, was a slowdown in projects. So you'll remember that New York shut down construction, San Francisco, Boston. By and large, over the continental United States, construction saw about a 10% decrease in actual job site activity. And we've come to the industry with the Procore Construction Job Site Activity Monitor that we share with the Association of General Contractors that has become a data source to give the industry some indication of what's happening. I will say, in this time of uncertainty around COVID, that the biggest barrier or headwind that we're facing is uncertainty about future projects coming online. And that, I think, goes for all businesses what's going to happen with the demand for real estate in the future, what's going to happen with uh, retail, with office. Those are the things that, as we look into the future, developers and facility owners are really trying to get a handle on what new projects should be coming out of the ground. Yeah, let me just reintroduce our guest here. We've got Brian Feinstein of Bessemer Venture Partners, Steve Zom, Chief Cultural Officer at Procore. Brian, uh, you've been on the board of Procore now, I guess, the last six years. Any thoughts from a board member perspective watching, having invested in Procore to to where they are today? Yeah, I think part of what makes the Procore story so fascinating is just the history of the business. We often hear these entrepreneurial stories and, and, and we hear about overnight success. Procore was the opposite. You know, I give a lot of credit to, to Steve and Tui and the rest of the early Procore employees. Um, this was a business that uh, uh, took a decade before it really started to take off. You know, we got involved six years ago. The company had been around for almost a decade prior, and uh, there's enormous amount of perseverance and, and struggle along the way, but they, they stuck with the vision, and it started to take off right around the time that, that we got involved about six years ago, and, and, and a few things happened. First, um, you started to see Internet arrive on the job site. Um, you know, obviously difficult to use cloud software if you don't have Internet access. So, so that was a game changer. Um, two, you saw a new generation of general contractors and specialty contractors taking over family businesses. These were digital natives who, who understood that software could, could, could be a source of competitive advantage, could make their business better. And then, and then three, you had, um, you had a team that was committed to execution, um, raising capital, aggressively going after the opportunity. You know, most of the competitors at the time were owned by PE firms or were companies that were focused on maximizing cash flow. You know, Tui, Steve, the rest of the Procore team, they saw this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to digitize the construction industry, and they raised venture capital from us and other firms to really invest aggressively in R&D, sales and marketing, and, 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 and that enabled the company to pull away from the pack. And it's, you know, the, the last thought I'll leave you with, which is it's not enough to just have the opportunity and raise the money. You've got to execute against the opportunity. And Procore has done an exceptional job, not only by virtue of really good R&D, building great product, listening to their customers, solving problems in the industry, but also creating a culture where, where the individuals who are building the software and selling the software and showing up to work every day, you know, love being at Procore. And so, you know, I don't want to steal Steve's thunder, but, but part of what makes Procore so special is the culture that they've built and, and, and the ability to use culture to attract and retain and motivate some of the best talent in the software industry. Well, that's a good transition to Steve. Uh, Steve, you sound like you have a, obviously a, a very engaged and fan board member here. Um, but talk about as your, as your role of chief culture officer, what are you doing to make that culture 
uh, as special as 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 Brian's talking about, and then also um, wh- how how is the remote aspect of what's going on now challenge that? Jeremy, great questions. I I, I think uh, you know when you look at the title of chief culture officer, it's something that I made the change about a year ago. I run internal operations here at at Procore. But my focus on culture is um, important because I think it's the most important competitive differentiator we have. Of course, we have a great facilities and real estate department and a great people department and fantastic talent acquisition department. But if you put all those things together, they work in concert to provide a culture that is, again, as I say, that competitive advantage. What, what we need to do in order to win in this market and to provide the very best service for our clients is we need to have employees who show up every day at work and they say, wow, I understand what I'm doing. I have the talents that are needed to do that. And I understand the, the purpose of why we're doing this. So that's how you get an engaged in, in, in employee. And everything we do from a culture standpoint at Procore is meant to drive engagement so that we drive employee performance. I mean, this is not just uh, the typical tech company that you might hear about that wants to give away free snacks to keep people at the office. This is about driving employee interest and passion for that vision of improving the lives of everyone in construction, that mission of connecting everyone in construction on a global platform. How do you get that when 90% of your employee base has had no experience in the construction industry before? And that's what you get if you can get that engagement, if you can show them the purpose, and if you can do so in an atmosphere that, frankly, is, is great to work in because people uh, share a common set of values, then you're going to get everyone uh, rowing the boat in the same direction, and you're going to get superior performance. Obviously, big challenge when you uh, all of a sudden have to take 2,000 employees and say, hey, guys, everyone is working from home from now until we don't know when. And that's been something that, um, as I, a quote I love, is that a, a crisis is a horrible time to figure out who you are as a company, but it's a great time to know who you are as a company. And I think with Procore's values of openness, ownership, and optimism, we've really leaned into those and come together as a uh, company and shared that common background, that those common values. And we've seen productivity uh, basically, on the margin, productivity has gone up as, as everyone has been able to, to work from home and not miss a beat when it comes to servicing our clients, continuing to roll out new improvements in the product, such as the Zoom integration, the Microsoft Teams integration that we've done, and really take a leadership position in the industry, serving as a clearinghouse for information about how our clients, construction companies, facility owners, specialty contractors, how they can work in this new environment. It's been fantastic to, to see the employees come together. Yeah, I feel like technology companies, in a way, you know, have 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 an edge in that that the, the, some of their work is meant for that work from home environment um, versus the other. I mean, do you have a sense on how you you know everybody's trying to hear how are people managing through the opening up? You mentioned you don't know when we're opening up, so I guess it's still murky. But how do you how are you guys thinking about that? Well, we're shifting to what we would call a remote first or remote advantage uh, culture. And by that, I mean, we were remote friendly before. So if you really wanted to work remotely, we would say, okay, it's probably not going to be the best. You're going to feel like the odd person out when uh, there's that one meeting and you have seven people in a conference room and you're the only person on a Zoom. What we've seen with COVID is all that has shifted. And now everyone's on their own Zoom. I don't see us ever going back to large group meetings where the people who are calling in are, uh, you know, over in one corner on a monitor in the conference room. Instead, everyone's going to be on their own Zoom because it's simply more effective as a way to communicate. I think we've leveled the playing field for uh, people who are remote, which also feeds into the idea that now, instead of having to hire for one of our 13 different locations worldwide and having to have employees come to one of those locations, whether that's in Toronto or New York City or our headquarters here in Santa Barbara, California. Instead, we can go get the talent from wherever that person happens to to be sitting. They don't have to be at a Procore office. That's tremendous upside. The other side of that, and this goes for all companies, is now you have to have a place 
that people want to work because of the people that they work with, not because of the great facilities, not because of the corporate campus, but because the people that they're in meetings with every day or that they're collaborating with or that they're working on projects with, they have to really enjoy working with those people, communicating and collaborating with those teams. And if you had a culture that was toxic or that uh, refused to share information openly, I can't imagine what it would be like to try and run that type of company in this type of environment. Happily, Procore's approach of openness and ownership and optimism seems to be positioning us as a company perfectly to go into a COVID-type world where it won't always be work from home, but it'll be this hybrid of some work at home and some work in the office. We've got a, a last maybe three minutes left. Uh, as you think about the long-term vision for Procore and the sort of construction industry, as you think about your successful big aspirations, what do you guys look like five, 10 years down the road uh, taking over the industry? Sure. The, the mission, again, is to connect everyone in construction on a global platform, and we would really underscore the word global. Procore has successful operations overseas. We're uh, on the ground in the UK, a very big presence in uh, Australia with our Sydney office, over 70 employees down there. We're in Toronto, Vancouver. That is really just scratching the surface. When most of the market opportunity when it comes to construction volume lies outside of the continental U.S., we need to get out there and really make this a truly global platform. I would also emphasize the word platform because Procore is always going to be open. We're going to work with partners in the industry. We have over 200 different companies that integrate their construction software solutions with Procore to make us that really, as Brian pointed out, the operating system for construction. We feel that we've just gotten started. We've just tapped into this market and the room for growth both domestically and internationally, still has a long way to run. So can't wait for the future. I think the best years of, of Procore still remain in front of us. And, and Brian, maybe sort of closing thoughts for, from you, 30 seconds. You know, any, as you think about the, the whole software industry, you know, any closing thoughts on the growth rates that these companies are, are delivering? Yeah, I mean, the, the power that, Pro, uh, that Procore provides by, by functioning as a operating system for the entire industry, a world where everyone in construction, the owners, the GCs, the subcontractors are living on Procore is incredibly rare and incredibly powerful. You think about companies like Microsoft, where everyone's using Office documents or Autodesk, where everyone's using CAD files. You know, the ability to become a platform like that is exceedingly rare and exceedingly valuable. And so that's why we remain excited about the future of Procore, not, not just the past. This is a great format. We get the investor, the, the business operator. Thank you so much, Brian and Steve, for joining us on Behind the Market to talk about Procore and what is happening in this cloud space. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you. Great to be here. Let me uh, thank our producer, uh, Patty Hall, who had the week off this week, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.